Welcome to Equinox, where Rob and I are striking the balance between the light and the dark. This is episode 18, and my name is Joseph Darnell, and I'm joined by my good friend, the Dr. Robert Carter. Hello, Rob. Hello, Joe. Last time we were talking about bees, I wanted to hear more of your thoughts about bees. But first, how's your week been? How are you doing, bro? Oh, man, I'm doing good. Well, this week specifically, I got tasked with a really amazing project. I don't know how far it's going to go, but I was asked to do a genomic analysis on the COVID-19 virus thingy. Oh, wow. Interesting. Through work or from outside, uh, an outsider source? Through work, through work. But I, okay. it, it's been... Basically, I, I, I tabled everything else I do. So, you know, the boss might not be totally happy that, you know, that I wasn't working on all his other projects he wants me to work on. But I spent almost the whole week downloading DNA, aligning it very carefully, looking at how many mutations have happened in all these different, I had like 3,500 different viral sequences. How many mutations, what types of mutations, what, what's the direction this thing is going in. It's, it's just a really fun project. I haven't it's been a while since I've been able to do something like this. Like last thing I did was the influenza virus doing the same exact analysis that I did on influenza five or six years ago. So what did the analysis for the influenza virus tell you then? Well, what we figured out after lots of experimenting was if you start with the earliest influenza strain, which is from 1918 that had been sequenced, all you had to do is count up the number of differences between that one and all later strains and graph it. And what you got was a perfectly straight line going up, 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 up. And the mutations just accumulated until the thing went extinct in 2009. And so that mutation accumulation was linear, which means natural selection isn't able to remove most of the mutations. Mm, okay. And when about 12 or 13% of the H1N1 genome had mutated, it literally went extinct the H1N1 we have today is not the same thing as the one that was circulating since 1917. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. And so I'm doing that with the uh, COVID-19. Now, it hasn't been 100 years. It's only been six months. So maybe 10 mutations have happened in most of the lineages. And so uh -huh. since I don't have like an endpoint, I can't look at the starting point in 100 years later, what I can do is look at all the mutations that have happened and say, okay, look at this. Most of these are C to T mutations, which is a shock. Well, then for the listeners, why don't you real quick just explain like the pros and cons of <laughs> mutations <quick>. for viruses? Because <laughs> I think everybody would be wondering now, like, what, what difference does it make if it's mutating or not? This has been a huge chunk of your, your research and yeah. your, the things that you've been teaching for many years. Yeah. The, the idea is called genetic entropy. It's an idea that natural selection is not able to remove most mutations from a population. Yes, it can naturally select some things to be more advantageous and drive things in a certain direction. But in the meantime, lots of other mutations are building up. And because of that growing mutation load, all species are doomed to extinction, whether or not natural selection is in operation or not. We saw that happen in the influenza virus, the H1, human H1N1. It went extinct in 2009 after lots of mutations happened. And we literally, we watched the genome randomize. That really is incredible. And it's not supposed to be true. You know, selection is supposed to drive things to better and stronger mutations. Or you know, Everyone's always worried about the new mutation. A lot of reports on, on the, uh, the coronavirus. It's mutated. There's new strains. There's eight strains in the world. Ah, we're all going to die. Well, no, actually, mutation is a good thing for a virus because it kills it off faster. Hmm. The faster it mutates, the faster it dies. And in fact, one of the strategies they use to treat HIV is to give them things that cause mutations. 
Oh, interesting. The wow. classic drugs for, for HIV cause the virus to go into mutational meltdown. And that's how they keep it's the, interesting the viral that. population repressed in the individual, it's by mutating the virus. That's what we're thinking of. And I got people in pretty good positions of governmental institutions, I won't say which one, that I'm working with. And uh, we think if we can get the analysis right, we might have a paper to publish. But it's going to be hard because so many other people have published papers on the subject. Interesting. Okay. To, to find something new that no one's thought of before is going to be hard, but I don't think people are thinking entropy. Everyone else is thinking it's going to get worse through mutation, and we're thinking the opposite. And didn't, didn't I think at one point in Equinox, we were talking about this, and it seems like it's more like popular common knowledge, but also misunderstanding that mutations generally lead to improvements and evolution and becoming something bigger, better and stronger and worse than it was before. But is that really the popular theory of the evolutionary theory anymore? Do people with the evolutionary model really believe now that mutations work against us for say a virus? Or do those that are really in the know, the scientists really know that mutations just don't work that way? It depends. And it depends on the context of the conversation, depends on which researcher you're talking to, depends on okay. which subject you're talking about, if you're talking about short-term or long-term. Because since everybody knows, they will say, that evolution is a fact, they would say, obviously, all the changes happen through mutations. Therefore, mutations in the long-term have to be beneficial. They have to be. So even if you were using that approach, then I would, I would guess then you could still use their own approach and say, well, the thing is, the virus is mutating now. And if you're to say that those mutations are going to help it out in the long run, those mutations aren't necessarily making it worse in the here and now, because that takes a long time. Your style of mutations that improve a virus and make it more powerful, wouldn't that logic kind of work? The way I like to, to conceptualize it is imagine you're driving an automobile. And you want to make this automobile last for as long as you can make it last. And if you like, you can soup it up over time. You put in a new carburetor, you know, fancy tires, fuzzy dice on, this, on the, the rear view mirror, whatever you want to do. You want to make it nicer over time. It doesn't matter what you do. That car will still self-destruct. <laughs> because you can do a big change. You know, swap out, put a new engine in. You know, brand new tires, new brakes, whatever. Big changes. But while you're doing all that, there's little teeny specks of rust that are accumulating. And there's nothing you can do about them. And eventually, your car will turn into a pile of rust. It doesn't matter how many times you change the oil. Hmm. And that's what we're talking about. Genetic yeah. entropy leads to just things falling apart. Darwin never considered this. He, he just said, oh, change happens, selection happens, therefore everything will get better over time. But even if you're selecting for one thing, like white fur on a polar bear or, you know, strong claws on a lion, even if you're selecting for one thing, the rest of the genome is picking up lots of mutations that have to be dealt with and can't be dealt with by selection because they're not strong enough. They're little teeny dings of rust. If you're born without a leg, you're going to die. If you're born without a heart or a head, you're going to die. But if you're born with one letter change out of billions of letters, it means absolutely nothing as far as the health of the organism, until tens or hundreds of thousands of those accumulate, and then there's nothing you can do to stay alive. Mm. That's the idea of genetic entropy, and that's what we're exploring in uh, the COVID-19 virus. Very interesting. Well, I'm very interested to see where you go with that paper. I want to read it when you're done. All right. We'll have a special report right here on Equinox when it's done. Good, good. Like to hear it. So in 
today's main topic, we're going to pick up where we discussed beehives and beekeeping and a history of honeybees and the like. Bees around the world from episode 17. We'll have a link to that episode if you're new to the show and you want to get caught up. I recommend you hear that one first. And we've discussed bees a, a little bit along the way throughout the series. But the reason being that Rob has been beekeeping in the past and he's got himself a new beehive he has built and he built me one as well and now we're looking to get some more bees of our own or i mean when i say more i mean more for rob and my first bees ever so rob i wanted to pick up where we left off last time we were talking about honey and i kind of felt like we needed to to discuss uh why your new beehive design is different from past beehive designs and how we're going to get bees to get started (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which, which shall we cover first? How we're going to get bees or the shape, size and shape of the hive and why? Let's do that first. Let's do the, the beehive design first. Good. Yeah, I like it. All right. So what I chose this time was called a Layens hive. Where does the name come from? Uh, it's a, I think it's a Russian guy. Okay. Um, yeah, the Russians are actually really into bee hunting, uh, yeah, uh, they, as it turns out. Yeah, they've been doing it for a long time. And because... They're distant from us. They have other ideas they've been working on for long, for you know, centuries. And all of a sudden, we hear about it. It's like, wait a minute, what are you doing over there? Oh, that's a really cool idea. So this hive is bigger than the white boxes that most people are familiar with, right? The, the Langstroth-style hive. Langstroth was a guy who lived in the 1800s who invented this hive. He picked a certain size, and you, put, you stack them on top of each other, and, you know, a standard beehive. But this one, the lane... They do look like pretty ordinary boxes. I like them. Are they all made of wood? And most of them have a like a generic white painting on them. Not anymore. They okay. they now have some plastic hives. You know, extruded polystyrene and things like that. And a really cool idea because you just pump them out really quickly. But they're expensive for some strange reason. <laughs> I mean, we should, oh, we could do this in an igloo cooler. Oh, <gasps> I. Bet I had yeah a cooler <laughs> that could work almost. It's already got a little Except hole for the bees one. to come in and out, right? The drain hole, and it's got <laughs> yeah. a uh, and it's insulated. Of course, that they'd suffocate in there, but you poke some holes in it. Ooh, yeah, you just get a drill out. Make Ooh, some holes. yeah. Oh, okay. Now I got to do some more experimenting. Anyway, this particular hive, it's in size. It's about oh fourteen inches tall on the inside. Yeah, nine and a half inches wide. And it's as long as you want it to be. So it's it's a little bit bigger than... It, it's, not, go it's, ahead. It's, not, it's not exactly like a coffin, but I would say the whole shape of it is very rectangular. Yeah, it's, it's like a, a short coffin for a very skinny person. Yes, yeah, it's, it's a rectangular... <laughs> but it's like a treasure chest size. If you think treasure chest... Like, yes, that's yo, a very... Yeah, ho, way better than coffins. Yeah, Let's yo, go ho, with treasure ho, in a battle of rum. Anyway, that song. Um, it's about the size of a pirate's treasure chest. <laughs> Honey rum. <laughs> but it's got holes in it. And that's for the bees to come in through at the bottom. And the one I built has a lid on hinges. So the hinge lifts up and you're seeing the top of all the frames. And you can grab a frame and lift it up. And there's vertical wires in the frame to help the bees uh, attach their honeycomb to it. Because the comb being made of wax can melt. And to have something there for them to help support it is a good thing. Plus it, it tells them where to build the comb you don't want them building it everywhere you want to tell them where it's supposed to go and so what we did you and i did we took a little piece of wax foundation cut a strip of it held it over the stove and melted it onto those wires so now there's a a little starter strip so the bees are like oh there's wax foundation here this is where i'm starting my comb and 
given bees, which we don't have yet, but given bees, they will start vertically hanging the comb. In fact, it's really, really cool. Um, I saw this a number of times in my old Kenyan top bar hives, but if you lift the frame up, you can see the bees making a beard. They chain. Making a beard? They chain together and make a parabola, a bee parabola. <laughs> a parabola? So they're attached at each what, end. What is a parabola? And well, the bees can make a parabola. They just, they just Wait, can't. Wait, what is a parabola? Oh, what's a parabola? It's like, um, I remember math class. It's not a circle. It's not a straight line. It's halfway in between. Oh, okay. It's, it, it, it's very similar to a half <laughs> it's been circle. A while. It, it's very similar to a half circle, but it's not, it's, um, it's a little wider at the, the part. <laughs> oh, okay. Ready? Ready? Satellite dish. That's a parabola. Ah, uh, okay. Not, yeah, so uh, like a very flat sort of dish design. Well, Nothing deep like a bowl, but... Well, it can be deep. Very sh- shallow. It can be deep, very deep, or it can be very shallow, but they all have the same shape. I'm trying not to explain it in mathematical terms, but it's not a circle. It's it's a little bit wider at the top than a circle. So okay. that if, if you follow the line and keep going, it'll never come back on itself. It doesn't come around in a circle. But if you dot, 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 and keep going, it just gets wider and wider and wider and wider and wider and wider. It's a parabola. Anyway, bees know how to do that. They'll grab each other's legs and they'll make a chain across the beehive in, a, in this parabol- parabolic shape. And that's where the honeycomb's going to go. Okay. They'll make this, they'll hang there and then other bees will fill in the wax in that shape. <laughs> it's really cool. Oh, neat. That is awesome. And in the case of our beehive frames, then they're going to make a parabola on those frames where we have the templates yes. and the wires? Yes. Nice. And then they will, from the bees up to the wood, they'll fill that in with wax. That is so cool. Now, if we're smart, we need a camera in our hives, man. We've got to drill a hole that and get a little awesome. outdoor camera. This is almost required now. <laughs> okay. Of course, they'll cover the lens in wax. So maybe we need a little window that we can move and stick a camera in there. And then put it back again because oh, yeah. they cover everything in the wax. Speaking of the wax, in everything that I've come across about how they make their hive and how they make their honey, I hadn't come across an explanation for how bees make wax yet. How do they make the wax? Wow, that's an interesting question. Yeah, they have wax glands and they make little wax scales. And I believe they chew it up and, and make it malleable. Well, I know when the bees collect nectar... Yeah. That they actually regurgitate it in each other's mouths and yes. digest it a little bit and then pass it along. Gross. So, uh, yeah, I know. Hey, I'm hungry. Give me some puke. There you go. All right. I was wondering if it's sort of like that. Hey, would you like some wax to chew on? No, they've got, they got little, um, little patches that make the wax. That is incredible. And I don't remember what the number is, but it's X number of pounds of wax for X number of pounds of honey. Oh, interesting. They have to make a lot of wax. And so one of the ideas... You know, people give the bees um, foundation. It already has the little hexagons on it. Or there's even plastic foundation has little cells. So they don't have to spend all that time making wax. But I'm not sure if that's good for the bees or not, because maybe they're designed to make that much wax automatically. Oh, that's a good point. I don't know if they make it on demand. Oh, I need this much wax. And so they start making it. I don't know. And it's just a really interesting question. I think that the way one beekeeper explained it was that the template of the plastic a comb just helps a younger beehive or a beehive or a, you know a colony that is struggling in numbers to lighten their load if they're already you know 
working really hard to find their nectar and keep the colony well fed and increase their numbers. And the queen has already got to put out a whole lot of new, what do they call them in their first stage? Do they call them eggs in their first stage? Yes. Or, yeah. So the queen's already busy with all of these other things. You're just giving them the template to give them a little less work to do. Yeah, except I don't believe that. The hmm. um, the idea of of artificial foundation came to us through some German evolutionists who believe that Interesting. Huh. if we make the cells larger than they would normally make in the wild, the bees will be bigger and therefore they'll be evolutionarily superior, you see. Hmm. Which is complete. That sounds like it could backfire. Oh, it's complete nonsense. Total. That means that you also have less bees if the bees are bigger. It also means... The bees take longer to grow. It also means the larva has to be fed more and there's more time for parasites to get into the comb before they cap it off. There's all these unanticipated trade-offs. It's, and plus, who says bigger bees are superior? What if they don't pollinate the flowers as well? What if they, don't, what if they take more energy to fly through the air than a smaller one would? What if a smaller they one probably can, would take more? Yeah, it would. Definitely would. What if a smaller one can collect the same amount of pollen? That's true. Or what if it's faster and therefore can collect more pollen? They don't know. But someone decided this is the standard size of wax foundation. And the ones that are used in beehives, in general, some people use a a foundation, just a flat sheet with no imprinting of the hexagons. But the standard one we've used for well over 100 years is an evolutionary idea that's based on nothing. (laughs) And it's quite possibly counterproductive. That's one reason why I want to go with the lay-in style, why I've done the other forms that don't have... We could, if we wanted to, use foundation in these frames. But that's money, too. I don't want to spend all that money. That's why we just took a little strip, and we put a little strip of foundation yeah. across the top that tells them where to start, and after that, they're going to make their comb however they want. They can have as many drones. Bees will. Yeah, yeah, bees just will, They inevitably. And they'll be smaller than normal. So then can you explain a little bit of why you chose the Layens hive versus other traditional kinds of hives? The reason I went with this one was because of the thought that in a larger hive, you can have more honey on one frame. Therefore, you can have an overwintering colony. Basically, they start off at the bottom of the frame and they eat the honey and they eat their way up. And with a larger frame, they have more food sitting right there on that one frame that they're hibernating, not hibernating, but overwintering on. And so that's, I thought that was a cool idea. Plus the, lar- yeah, is neat. Yeah. the larger volume gives them more space for, to do stuff. I don't need multiple boxes stacked on top of each other. This one thing that, that we made is plenty big for one entire beehive. The colony won't max itself out. So if I'm right, one advantage is that if you use the uh, stacked box design is that they will mix up their egg cells with honey cells. And then isn't there like other things they put into the comb besides just eggs and honey? I forget what, but there's different kinds of bees growing in some of those cells. But in the traditional box design, you they, they usually use something to prevent the queen from traveling up into the box above her so yeah. that there can be just a box at the top for the beekeepers honey yeah because the workers do get up there and they will go ahead and use those cells and just fill it up with a nice consistent honeycomb full of honey and so that that that's the idea that that's the advantage so that you can leave the honey for the bees in the lower quadrant and then there's the beekeepers quadrant above but with the layens hive as you were saying last time 
the with this design, it's just that there are so there's so much room on all the frames in general in the whole box that the queen stays to her side. Yeah. And her side is where all the egg cells go. And so you just generally let, leave that to the colony. But given the size of the box and all the frames combined, you're going to wind up with plenty of frames on the other end that just have honeycomb. And you can still put a queen excluder in there. It's just a piece of plastic you that you can oh. cut. I mean, you cut it, do whatever you want. And so you can still put a piece of a queen excluder in there if you want to. But yeah, the- another advantage I can see just as a beekeeper is that it's less fidgety and less um, cumbersome. You're not moving around boxes to remove lids to then get to the frames. All you got to do is open up one lid and then you have access to all the frames. And those boxes can be heavy. I mean, it is a backbreaking, laborious job to be a beekeeper. And if you've got a bunch of beehives, it's a lot of work. And this one, you just tilt the lid up and you can pull a frame straight out. I'm really surprised this isn't the only beekeeping beehive design like ever. Like it to me, the being new to this, this just seems like the obvious way to go. Do you know why they went with the stacked box approach before? This very smart man back in the 1800s decided that he's going to build a beehive with certain dimensions. And within that beehive, he had what we, he called bee space. And that's this volume that's appropriate for what he thought a honeybees. And there's all these spaces in there. So, you know, it's at least an eighth of an inch or half an inch or whatever in, in different dimensions so that the bees can crawl around and not get stuck in a place. And the comb hanging down is exactly spaced apart, he thought, like they did in nature. So by giving them a nice place to live and, a, and nice places to build their comb, he could accelerate what they do in nature and control it. And now that we've got queen I think that the way they do in nature is so cool. Just to see all the hanging honeycomb on the tree branches and the oh, like man. in videos. I don't know that I've ever run across a honey beehive in nature. I've seen terribly scary looking hornet's nests. You're going to see um, them now. How am I missing all the no, honeybees? You will now yeah? see them. Your eyes will be open because now when you see a honeybee flying, you're going to follow it with your eyes. Oh, okay. And if you're walking by a place and you see a bunch of honeybees, you'll be like, wait a minute. And you'll be up, up in that hollow in that tree right there. I know there's a, there's a honeybee colony. Or you'll smell them. Once you start working with bees, you'll get the smell. And you'll be walking down the woods on a trail and go, oh, I smell honey. And you'll know that there's a beehive somewhere. <laughs> nice. You get the, the spidey wow. senses. You get your sixth sense built up. Oh, uh, yeah. I get my honeybee senses. That's oh, right. I like this. And it's really cool. I'm looking forward to my newfound superpowers. <laughs> That's right. Does that mean that I become the honeybee king? I'm liking this idea. Um, yeah. If you want to be, you can be the honeybee king. <laughs> yeah. I'll get that on a t-shirt. <laughs> king bee. Yeah, it's kind of weird, man. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Sorry. What you were saying about honeybees. <laughs> So the whole idea is to give them a space that they like, that's appropriately sized, appropriately ventilated, um, insulated, protected from predators, bears and mice and hornets and, and things like that. And there's thousands of possible ways to do it. It's just we have the standard way to do it because it made it really convenient to industrialize. You take that white box off the top, you pull out the comb, you slice the, the front of the, uh, the wax comb off, you put it in an extractor, you spin it around in a circle, all the honey falls to the bottom, you cap it, you're done. You might filter it, you might heat hmm. it, but that's, that was the process. You can't do a process like that with the old-fashioned skeps. While you're th- talking about how you extract the honey, I, I hadn't thought to ask before, but 
Do you put the honeycomb back into the hive somehow after that, or are yes. we destroying oh, no. the honeycomb when we extract? No, you just cut the caps off, spin okay. it, all the honeycombs out, and you put it back in again. Now, you may not okay. want to use the same honeycomb for 40 years, though some people have, because it turns black. Oh, that's why some of the videos showed some black cells. Yeah. I wonder yeah, that's why. Old. That's old comb. and. Ew. There, well, <laughs> there might not be anything wrong with it, or the honeybees after a while might not like it as much. If you keep on forcing them to use it, eh, maybe it's not the best. I don't know the answer to that, and there's lots of opinions, and opinions differ wildly. Hmm. I can understand that. It's not easy to communicate with a honeybee to find <laughs> out what they do and don't like. Yes, but when they all die, they just told you they don't like what you did for them. <laughs> yeah, but then it's too late. That's right. It's too late. <laughs> and it, the worst thing about this whole thing is that the weather is more variable than anything you do for the bees. So what's the exact perfect size of a beehive? I don't think anybody knows because you can't take, you know, a hundred different beehives of different sizes and maybe 10 of this size and 10 of that size and 10 of this size and 10 of that size and put them in a random array in a field and see which one's best because there's all these other things like maybe, you know, uh, anyway, it's really, really, really hard to figure out all these things. And so beekeepers just kind of wing it and we get a feel for things and a sense for things and start developing our way of doing things. And sometimes it's not quite the same as someone else's. Uh, so it's really, it's, it's a really neat community to be in. Beekeepers are great people. Oh, yeah. Everything that I've seen has been very you know, positive. All the beekeepers I know are great people. And the hobby is fun. And it's... Because there's so little that we actually know, there's a lot of room for experimenting and learning. And I bet 50 years from now, we're not going to be keeping bees the same that we did 50 years ago. It's going to change <laughs> a lot as we learn more. Speaking of things that we have been learning then, can you explain to me how you're going to get bees? Because like when we, <laughs> we started off this year, we were thinking that we could use some uh, lore to attract the bees to these hives. And maybe if we caught them just in time back there earlier this year that we could attract a bee swarm to just to discover our beehives and move in. Which has happened to me twice before. So I yeah. know it's possible and yeah. we can still capture. Did, a did you lure they, them before? No, no. I just left old, old honeycomb out in a hive and they just moved right in. Awesome. We hmm. can still do it. It's, it happens throughout the year, but if we do it later on in the year, they're not going to have time to build up honey to survive the winter. We'll have to feed them. Oh, okay. See, I don't mind doing that. Oh, no, and that's one fun. One of the things that that's fun. I come across. Yeah. Yeah, no, feeding. I think I might just do it anyway. Because if I, if I got bees to my hive, dang, I want to take care of them. That's right. I, I'm honored to have them. I'll, 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 they're my guests. I mean, I'm going to be a proper hostess. Good for you. Or a proper host. And it's, <laughs> it's really easy to feed them. You put some sugar and water on the stove and heat it up. Yeah. Some, uh, what do they call that? They call that like a, just a sugar syrup. Yeah. And you can add a few things to it that you, different potions and things that beekeepers swear by that you can buy online. And then you pour it in a mason jar. You put the lid on the mason jar and you, you would have poked little teeny holes in the lid. Or you go buy one that fits on there. It's got a little, little holes in it. But I like poking them myself because I'm a cheapskate. And you flip it upside down and the, the water is thick enough. It won't drip out the holes. But the bees can come and lick it. Oh, no, they do. I've oh, seen yeah. examples now on YouTube and they really thrive off of that. Oh, it's yeah. Really they'll, cool. they'll drain that thing in a, in a day or two sometimes depending on the colony. Anyway. And there's places, there's, you know, fancy frames that you can pour the honey in inside the colony. Or what I prefer is you just take the mason jar, put it in a wood block with a hole in it so the bees can crawl into the wood block and lick the bottom of the thing. And you shove that into the entrance of the hive. 
I understand that now because I finally saw an example of this where, yeah, they just used like some spare, you know, uh, wood scrap blocks. Yeah. The, they, they had cut off of other woodworking projects or something and sat that down inside of the beehive and just made a space where they took out maybe some of the frames and stood the jar upside down and poking some holes into that yeah. mason jar lid does the trick. That's not what we'll do. Because I drilled holes for the bee entrance, we're going to actually uh-huh. put the mason jar on the end of a PVC pipe. And a little oh, short and, piece of pipe. And push it into the hole. And they'll come in the pipe to the bottom of the jar. Yeah, and they never have to go outside to eat. That's awesome. I had no idea. That is great. I think you might have tried to ex- explain that to me, but it, it didn't click the first All time. Right. Hey, there's something else about, about queens inside the hive. Um, yeah. They can get honey bound. I have heard. I don't know if it's true, but I imagine it's true. So many people say it. Um, yeah, she, the queen doesn't like to walk across honeycomb. And if the workers oh, surround her huh. with honey, she might get stuck. And so she can only work in that space, that one little space where she is. I don't know if that's true or not, because I know she can walk around in the colony. But there's other reasons why people want to open up and look at their comb as they're making it. To make sure she's not honey bound, that she's still alive, uh, that she's active, that she's still laying. Because an old queen might stop laying, but the workers don't know that. Then if that were to happen, can you just simply pick up the queen bee and move her to another frame? I don't know the answer to that. Probably yes, but I don't know. Hmm. But you can requeen hmm. a hive. You oh, buy a new queen. Okay. It's called so, requeening, yeah. and you could swap out the, the queens. Yeah, that's, this is possible. Interesting. Or because... See, I, I'm going to be a little fond of that queen. I think I'm going to give her a name, going to put a little sign, a little mailbox outside the honeybee hive, and just say, like, this is her territory. Well, you know... We love her and revere her. I'll hail the queen. Sometimes when you buy a new queen or buy a, a swarm of bees with a queen in it, she's marked. They'll put a little dab of paint on the back of her head so she's really easy to spot. It's just, oh, that's it, neat. It's usually white. So then how, would, how are you going about it this time, you think? Now that we are later in the year, you're going to buy some bees? What, what are you coming at? I'm going to do both. I'm going to hedge my bets, but I don't want to miss out next season. So I'm going to order bees, but I'm going to do it early. Usually I wait too long. And the guy's like, oh, yeah, we'll have some more bees ready, you know, in May or June. That's just too late. I want to get my bees first, and I want to get them in my hive as early as possible. So we're talking March-ish for Georgia. And so I'll contact the bee guy. In fact, I think I'm probably going to go up to the guy in Cartersville because I've done him before, and I, I think he's a great guy and local bees. And So I'm going to make sure I get my order in early. I'll drive up there and pick it up because you can order bees, and they'll mail them. <laughs> and you will get the most interesting phone call from the post office. Would you please come here and get these bees? <laughs> that is amazing. <laughs> I've gotten more than one of those phone calls because the bees come in a in a little, not very stout cage with wire mesh sides. And so literally the oh. post office guy is staring at thousands of bees and he knows if he breaks this thing that he's gonna have bees all over the post office so yeah <laughs> i can't believe they even mail it that way that it's legal uh, it That's is shocking amazing. yes but old, old school stuff still hangs on in some plate cases and this is one of those examples uh, but i'll probably go up to so you said you're gonna buy the box yeah. but you're also going to try and catch a swarm uh, oh yeah because i'm gonna i have to hopefully by next year i'll have more boxes ready to go 
And I can either take this Layens Hive and put it out in a field somewhere with some, some bait in it, or you can make one that's a little smaller and put it up in a tree, on a tree line near a field, in different places. And you put, you know, five or ten of these out, and maybe you catch two or three swarms. Maybe you catch one or zero, I don't know. But having multiple boxes out there is giving you a better probability you might actually capture some bees. And we don't really have to worry about the so-called Africanized bees up here. If I was in Texas, I'd be worried. Arizona. Hmm. Oh, oh, really? It's, they're just more aggressive. And if you're not... I didn't realize the African bees were in the United States. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they've been here for a long time. Everyone was terrified about them in the 70s. It was the murder hornets of the, of the 1970s was, was the African bees, <laughs> the killer bees, they called it. I mean, movies, horror movies about it, newscasts. Are you serious? Oh, yeah. I knew about that movie. I saw parts of that movie. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Actually, kind of funny because it's just so over the top. All of it was over the top. It was just people were being afraid of silly things because I guess people like being afraid. But they're here and they're everywhere in the South, especially in the really hot places. And they're an aggressive bee. And you can actually keep them as bees. You can do it. It's just not fun being stung a lot. And I think they might <laughs> no. they might not produce as much honey. I'm not sure. But in order to get around that, you order bees or you breed your own bees. As long as you know what the queen is, you're not going to get Africanized honeybees. So you're definitely going to get the, the box of bees for the hive you have now. Yes. You need to place your order soon. I need to do the same thing. Yes. Because I, I don't want to disappoint my family. Everybody has been looking at this hive that we have on our house now. <laughs> it just feels like an empty bird's nest. You know, if you ever uh, get yes, a bird's nest sad. up on your porch or in a tree and everybody can check out the robin eggs or something. And then, you know, one day the, the birds just never come back and you see the nest and you wait and wait and see if somebody else is going, some other bird is going to discover it and, and then use it again. And I don't want that to happen for another year. This is episode 18? Yes. So episode 70, 52 weeks from now, we'll have to give an update on the bees that we've had since March. Exactly. All right. So one, yeah. year, one year from now, we'll make a plan that we'll have a, our, our one year anniversary of the bee podcast. So then can you explain how people catch the bee swarm? You said you put the box yeah. up in the tree or you put your beehive out in the field. I saw an example, Rob, that was very impressive and well done. It seemed like a very professional procedure, but they took a very different approach where they just took a cardboard box, found the beehive in the <laughs> wild hanging off of a tree and going up to the branch on the tree, you know, standing on a ladder, they just basically shook and broke the, the hive off into the box and brush all the bees that fall into the box yep. and wait a few minutes to make sure that the queen fell in. Because if the queen is not in the box, then she'll still be on the tree somewhere. So yeah. then the bees return to her. So they got to find the queen, get her in the box and then take that to their fabricated beehive back at home. And then they pour the cardboard box into it. it, 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 it it's amazing, but it seems so sloppy. And it, it, I can't believe that the bees don't revolt. You know what I think? I think the reason that this sounds so crazy is because growing up, I had rabbits. I had pet rabbits. Yeah. And those rabbits, they're, they're kind of domestic, but they're really not. And they're not especially smart. So a couple of times they would escape and run away and find a burrow somewhere nearby and live there for a month before I could catch them and bring them back to their hutch. So for me, the thought of a whole bee colony basically cooperating as you've confiscated them, as you've uh, taken them from their natural habitat and forced them into the box doesn't sound like it could possibly work. <laughs> You got multiple things happening here at the same time, and I'm smiling as you're describing this. 
First of all, by putting out places for a bee swarm, it's not called a hive, it's a swarm at this point, to find, you don't have to go and drop them into a box. When they're hanging on a branch, they're scout bees looking for a place for them to live, and they're going to move somewhere, and they're going to move into some place. So by providing a place for them, some scout bees might find it, and the whole swarm might move in, boom, you got your bees. And that thing that okay. you used to capture them doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't even have to be permanent. It doesn't have to be pretty. It could literally be a cardboard box as long as you don't let it get rained on. There's, so there's you know little tent things. People put out this kind of box or that kind of box or a real hive. I mean, any, there's all these different ways to do it. As long as there's a good bee space and an attractant, if there's bees around searching, they'll find it and they'll move in. The second thing that you're talking about is when that swarm, they've left their first hive and they're just flying around, the queen will land somewhere, and all the workers will cluster right onto her. And there'll be a blob of bees, a couple of pounds of bees, hang on a branch or a fence or something. They're actually not angry. They're not dangerous. They're not fierce. This is one of the most docile periods for the bee colony. So you can go up to one with a box, shake the branch, all the bees fall in the box, and you can just walk away with your bees. They're not, I can't say they're not going to attack you, but literally this is the, they're just chill. And I don't know why, if I was a bee, I'd be like, um, I don't got a house here. I'm, oh, yeah. I would be like a, um, a hermit crab outside the shell. You know, you get a little worried that you're about to get eaten by something. But no, they're, they're actually <laughs> calm. And so if you see a bee swarm, this is something to rejoice in, not something to run away from. Wow. That is so amazing. That is, that is so ideal. It couldn't have been made better. That just the fact that they are docile to the point. It's so perfect for the beekeeper situation. I can't believe it just happens to work out that way. Do you know why they're docile at that point? No, I have no clue. No, Interesting yeah. question. I've never thought about that. But it's like you said, there's so many things that the beekeepers just don't know yet, haven't figured out. It's so bizarre that we have so much of this figured out. And then there's just some things we never will. Or, or other people know, and I just don't know because I've never thought of to ask that question before. Or they don't know, oh, okay. and maybe someone's going to figure it out. That's kind of a cool question. I think some of this stuff is like a lot of other sciences where we have a pretty good theory, but we really just cannot say that we can validate our theory yet. Could be that way as well. I, I honestly believe that a lot of the problems that beekeepers have is because we thought we were doing it right and aren't. So the that makes total sense. The mites that plague us, the hive beetles that plague us, they, these are massive problems in beekeeping. And maybe it's because, you know, we're building beehives with square corners. And maybe those beetles can hide in the corner and the bees can't get to them. But if it was a round thing, the bees could sweep them out the hive. Hmm. I just made that up. I don't could know. Be. But what if, right. what if we should not be having square corners? Or what if the, the frame that we choose, the frame that we've been using so long is just exactly right for that parasite to fit into that spot right there? And if we actually made a little wider, a little narrower, we could get rid of them more easily. Mm. All sorts of cool questions like that can still be addressed. Yeah. Speaking of things that we haven't addressed then, how do you not get stung? <laughs> I feel like a lot of our listeners were wondering about that at the very beginning. How did we not talk about this yet? Well, because, okay, anecdotally, again, uh, I remember when I was maybe 11 years old, being in my parents' backyard, cutting the grass, yep. and we knew that we had a yellow jacket problem. Yep. And for years, I, I would just go out back and observe the yellow jackets coming in and out of their nest in the ground. But this one day, 
I totally blinked. I wasn't thinking about where that yellow jacket nest was. And I'm cutting the grass and I mowed right over them and kept on going. Oh, yeah. And I wasn't 50 feet away when I got, felt this first sting on my ankle. And I jump up and let go of the mower and ran into the house. And by the time I got in there, I think I had two or three other yellow jackets. And hey, you got then there was another time. Yeah, really. And then another time, I, I, if I could have flown, I think I was like flying above the ground to get inside at time. Then, then I was in, and this other time I was at a friend's house in the fall and we were blowing leaves and they had leaves everywhere. Tons of huge full grown trees. Oh, man. And this one place in the backyard, a huge porch, and they had these troughs for flowers, but they had never used them. And so they were just chop full of leaves and I'm blowing leaves out and they're going everywhere in my face. And all of a sudden I realize all these, this leaf debris going everywhere. It doesn't look like the same leaf debris that I was <laughs> blowing before. And yellow with black like, stripes. There's a lot of, yeah. I'm like, there's a lot here. Holy cow. <laughs> And I jumped back and I ran in the house and we closed the door and I tell my friends what's going on. And I easily had somewhere like 12 to 20 bees on me and we get the swatter out and we're killing them left and right because then now I've brought them into the kitchen. Yeah, this it was, is, it was these are yellow mess. jackets, right? I don't remember what they were Yeah, because um, back in those days, I didn't really care. Yeah. Almost certainly these are yellow jackets, not honeybees. Yeah. But, all right, so how do you not get stung? Uh, strategies. Yeah. One, you, you wear protective clothing. Now, they could still sting you through those leather gloves, because I know this. You can still get stung <laughs> through, the, through your white jacket. I know this, too. But it's hard for them to do it. Second, don't mess with bees when it's cold out. They're not happy. Don't mess with bees when it's wet. They don't like rain. Oh, huh. But my least favorite part of the day is their favorite part, when it's hot. <laughs> so you don't you don't go out in the early morning or the evening. No, you go out when the sun is blazing hot and you're wearing this full gear and you're sweating profusely. And that's the time you're less likely to get stung. I mean, think about it. You're ripping their house apart when you're inspecting the hive. <laughs> you're messing up the, the temperature and the humidity and the pheromones that they work so hard to balance just the way they like it. You're completely obliterating all that work. So if they're ornery, that's the worst time you want to tear their house apart. When I was building warray hives and selling them, I had one day when a whole bunch of these homeschooling families wanted me to build them a beehive. Okay. And then they wanted me to order the bees. All right. So I did a big ordering, like seven or eight bee packages in one day. And they're like, oh yeah, you're going to come install them, right? I was like, what? No, this is your beehive. Oh no, we don't know how to do it. <laughs> okay. And so I started early in the morning. And by the time I, I'm driving all over the place, by the time I got done, the last house, the sun is setting, is starting to drizzle. And I got <sighs> this package of bees. I'm trying to pour them into the top of this beehive and they are completely not happy. And, you know, I've only got a, a upper bee, bee suit. I don't have the full pants. And so what I would do, I just wear jeans and I tuck them into my boots. No, that was stupid because as I'm <laughs> dumping these bees into this beehive and they're not happy, they're falling into my boot. And I ended up with my right leg swell. I had like 17 or 20 bee stings all around oh. my ankles that one ankle and oh i mean it hurt for weeks and so now what i do is i wear jeans and boots and i take saran wrap 
and I go over my foot and around my foot and I saran wrap <laughs> my, my jeans to my boot and I have no more problems. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so, secrets to bees is you just do it at the right time. Honey, uh, smoke works great. Now, I don't, I don't like smoking because it's, you know, it's the bees don't like it. It's not healthy for them, but smoke calms them down nicely in a hot part of the day, and that's that's really how you do it. You, you you just don't, you know, play with the bees when they're happy. That's the best way to not get stung, and don't bring little children near a beehive. Oh, okay. Um, I, I have all my kids have been near the beehive from the side, not from the front. You don't stand right at the entrance where the bees are flying in and out, but as you stand just off to the side, you can see the entrance just fine. You can get your face like six inches away, but don't breathe on the bees. They don't like carbon dioxide. They can, they detect it somehow. And they'd be like, I smell or I taste or I detect carbon dioxide and he'll start flying toward it. Because carbon dioxide equals animal. Animal equals something that eats bees. Oh, wow. So you also, if you got a bee on you, don't blow it away. Because he'll come right back at you again. <laughs> Brush him away. Fine. Don't go, oh, no. That oh, really wow. makes him angry. But That's a really good tip. <laughs> I had uh, one of my daughters. She was about uh, five or six. And she wanted to help me with the bees. And she's, oh, I'm going to help daddy with the bees. All excited. And I told her, stand way over there. And she, I thought, was far enough away. Well, B landed on her nose and started stinging her up her nose. And she mm. just stood there and screamed. So I walk oh. up to her and I smacked her nose. And the bee got knocked <laughs> off. And But she wasn't old enough to realize that she could flick the bee off her nose. Oh. She just, and plus Poor once girl. it stings you, it's too late. But if you get the yeah. stinger out quickly, it doesn't have time to pump a lot of toxin in. It'll pump three or four times to get the toxin in. And if you get off right away, you only get a you know, small sting. But children, until they're old enough to realize, one, you're going to get stung and you're not going to die. Are you tough enough to do this? Okay, let's be brave. And you, once you can have that talk with them, they're probably okay. And if you tell them, look, if you get stung, brush the bee off. No big deal. It's going to hurt a little bit. Whatever. Then it'll be fine. But if they're not old enough to, to do that, they shouldn't be anywhere near bees. Mm. Before we're done for today, I wanted to get a little bit more about how you're going to go about using a what you said called before the show a bee trap to catch your own swarm yeah. or colony just to get your first hive, the one you got built now started. What I'm going to do is I'm going to slap together some inexpensive wood boxes that are about only a little smaller than my current hive, but big enough a bee might like it. And I'm going to deploy them in different places. I'm going to call up all my friends, essentially. And if I have a friend who has property, who has a tree line, I'm going to say, hey, can I put a box you know, up in this tree? I might attach it to the tree. I might put it on a ladder. If he has a back porch, I might put it on their back porch, like my beehives on my porch. Um, just get it up off the ground a little bit. Because bees don't like being one foot off the ground. That is not natural. They like being up in a tree. And so we're trying to capture them up in the air with some inexpensive almost disposable little boxes that you can have out for a couple of months and you know every week or so drive by or ask my friend hey if you see any bees just give me a call and i'll go collect the box the box has to be able to uh, you have to be able to cover the the entrance and you can't do that in the middle of the day because half the bees will be flying around you do it either early in the morning or after the bees have gone to bed you just cover over the entrance and then you can take that box and go anywhere you like with it hmm and that's the strategy. Interesting. I'm I'm looking forward to hearing how this goes then. We're going to have to give everyone some updates just about how catching your bee swarm may go. Yeah, when when it happens. And you might be doing this okay. too, actually. Uh, yeah, you just okay. might. Of course, if we order bees, we don't have to do this. No. Yeah. 
but an, um, honestly, inter- an enterprising person can capture one bee swarm and turn it into hundreds. I've already come across a few examples where this has been done. Yeah. The very successful beekeepers yeah. that just started from catching one swarm. Yeah. And so this is, this is, anyone could be a beekeeper. Anyone who doesn't live in a New York City apartment building could be a beekeeper. <laughs> yeah. Very neat. Well, I think that's going to wrap it up for this episode. This is really good. This is a good foundation for all the bees talk in the future and uh, where we go from here. I'm really excited, Rob. Cool. It's good stuff. But next week is not going to be and, about and bees. And I'm so glad. No, 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 no. No. We some... have something completely different. Yes. Back to basic, cool, fun, science, nerdy stuff. All right. So thank you so much for joining us on this quest, this uh, buzzing topic. If you want to dig deeper into this one, you can find all the links to stuff that we have discussed in the show notes on the website. Go over to nightowl.fm slash equinox slash 18. Or if you're right there with this podcast playing on your phone, the show notes are also with this episode in your podcasting app. And you should also check out Rob's content at biblicalgenetics.com. He actually doesn't always talk about bees. His uh, Facebook page or YouTube channel as well by the same name, Biblical Genetics, where you can see the videos and join discussions in the comments. And if you want to catch up with me, I'm always on Twitter. My name is at JCS Darnell. Until next time, goodbye, Rob. Goodbye, Joe. And uh, you have been listening to Equinox. Equinox.